0: Um, but I was thinking this week as I was looking back over some things in my life, going, man, don't you wish there were moments you could live where you never had regret? Don't you wish you, you never had things in your life where if you could look back, you go, man, I would love to do that again. And so I was thinking about one of the things I would like to do again. And sometimes um, you realize in the moment, I should have done that differently. And you go back and you try to correct it in the moment. And so this is one of those stories for me. A couple of years ago, my son was a part of a, a golf thing in the area called the First Tee, and it goes to various golf courses in the community. And one of the courses was at that year, um, I dropped my son off, and I could tell the, the woman who ran it that night, I looked at her, and, and, and um, she was kind of distraught and disheveled, and I could tell it wasn't normally how she looked and was acting, and I said, are you okay? She goes, no, I'm frustrated. And I said, oh, what's going on? And so she told me this story, and... Long story short, the golf course had agreed that they could be there on a particular night, and they could use their driving range, and all this stuff had been scheduled months out. And and as um, sometimes happens, there's some turnover and some management, and so now they were saying, hey, you're never going to be able to use the driving range. What's a thing for little kids? It's kind of important to what they do in development. And so I I said to Terry, I said, Terry, I'll, I'll go inside and let me see what I can do. I thought, well, I mean, I coach one of the area high school golf teams, and I thought, you know, I'll just see if I can schmooze this and we'll figure this out. And so I thought, first, let's find out if it's just some kid behind the counter saying the wrong thing. And so I said, hey, can, can I get a bucket of balls to, for the range? He goes, oh, no, range is closed. Okay, at least we're not dealing with that. And so then I said, well, um, all those kids out there right now that are here for this golf thing, are, are they allowed to use the range? And they go, no, no. And I said, every week or just tonight? And he goes, every week. And I said, really? Like, um, but didn't they like schedule this months out for them to be here on this particular night to be a part of this? He goes, yeah, yeah, but I wasn't here then. I said, well, shouldn't you honor what, what happened before? And he goes, eh, you know, we're going to maintain this and we're not going to do that. And I said, you know, I would hate to, I coach one of the high school teams in the area, I'd hate to talk to all the other coaches and say, we should not have our kids come here. That'd be a terrible thing to do, wouldn't it? I said, if we don't care about kids and junior golfers here, that's no good. And it's kind of a kind of a bad thing for me to do. It started, I cared about the kids, but eventually it became kind of like, I was kind of ticked off now too, right? And so he says, hey, don't come in here and square off with me. I said, I'm not squaring off. I'm just telling you what will happen if this is how we're going to treat junior golfers here. And I walked out and I was was ticked. He was probably ticked too. But about five minutes later, I kind of got checked because my spirit wasn't very good and my heart wasn't what it should have been in the moment. And so I walked back in. I said, hey, I'm sorry for my attitude, but let's come up with a solution to help these kids. What would it take to make sure that this doesn't happen for them, that they can use the driving range? It shouldn't be that big a deal. How can we make that happen? And so we worked to a kind of a solution. So I went and told Terry later, I said, hey, got to figure it out. Here's what's going to happen. And everything was kind of worked out. But honestly, my attitude wasn't great. I was ticked off for kind of the wrong reasons at some point. And so thinking, thing what does it mean for us to be upset for the right things? And so I started thinking about maybe many of you know the story of William Wilberforce. Of force was an abolitionist in the United Kingdom and Great Britain, and so he uh, fought for the end of slavery. And so most of his adult life, after a, a kind of a conversion to his faith, where he began to be serious about following Jesus, um, he started trying to live this out and saying, that at some point, people should not be treated as property. People are inherently created in the image of God, and if that's true, we shouldn't treat them like this. And so he wrote bill after bill after bill. He worked with others to try to get this passed. But, but to end slavery in the United Kingdom would mess up the economy. right? That's free labor. And so no one really wanted this to pass. And it kept going on. For years he worked for this. And finally, one month after he died, a bill passed in slavery in almost all the United Kingdom. That's the story. His anger was righteous because it was about this idea that there are barriers keeping people from being seen in the very image in which they were created. And so he lived his life trying to make that wrong right. And this is what Jesus does. And is what a weird text for us at first glance from John chapter 2 where he enters into the temple. And it's called, if you have a little subtitle in your Bible, it probably says something like Jesus cleanses the temple. And so here's the text from John chapter 2. His disciples remembered that it is written, Zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then responded to him, What sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, It's taken 46 years to build this temple. And you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said, and they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Now while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. Now, for us to kind of look at this, we probably have to begin with the idea of what in the world is Passover and why is it important to the Jewish people? And why would Jesus be going to Jerusalem during that season? So Passover was the celebration of the exodus out of Egypt when the Israelites had been enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. They cried out to God, asking for God to set them free. And he did. He heard their prayers, he heard their pleas, and he answered their cries. And Moses leads the people out of Egypt. And it's known as the Exodus Journey. Is this journey from slavery to freedom, this idea that they have been oppressed and marginalized and pushed aside. And now God has set them free because they're God's unique people in the world. And so what we begin to find is they have this celebration every year. They celebrate the Passover. And so if you're Jewish and you're able, if you live within 15 miles of Jerusalem, it was mandatory you went to Jerusalem. And if you lived outside 15 miles, the goal was to make it at least once in your lifetime or every year if you could so by this time in human history, Israelites have been exiled all around the, the Middle East. And so they're from all over the place. And so they gather in Jerusalem. They celebrate this Passover, what God has done. But Passover was not just a look back, but it was also a look forward. A belief that God had freed them and would free them again because at the time they were under Roman reign. And so this we begin to find is this story. And so they've been longing and looking for someone to come and save them from their captivity Kind of a side note, the early church always talked about Jesus as the new Moses, this idea that he was the one who would lead God's people out of their own slavery. But we talk more about the idea they were enslaved to the sin of their lives. And so Passover, this time in Jerusalem, would have been a time in which the city would have been overflowing with people. At a minimum, the city was about 50,000 people in a small, confined area, but, but most would say it was more than that. But the city swelled to such a greater volume that we could begin to understand. At, a, at kind of a minimum level, it was 250 to 300,000 people gathered in that small city of 50,000. Some scholars even argue that maybe up to 2 million people came to Jerusalem during that season. So if you can just imagine a city designed for 50,000 people, think like Muskegon, and 2 million people show up. Where are you putting them? How are you feeding them? Where are they going to go? You can just imagine how crowded it would be. In fact, here's some city, pictures of the old city of Jerusalem even today. And so you'll see this first one. This is just a market street right there in the old city. Notice how narrow it is. And that's with just a few dozen people on that road. And here's another picture, an even tighter window in which you'll find people right there. It was about three or four people wide. That's it. And so much of this has been kind of recreated to what the first century looked like. And so this is where people would have gathered and been walking and it would have been crowded and tight and you would have felt claustrophobic. And if you battle anxiety, you would have hated life because people would have been right on top of you. Some of you in this room are like, I need a buffer seat like between me and the person next to you. It's like when a bunch of guys go to a movie, like you don't sit next to that guy, you leave a seat between you. That was not the case during Passover. You were going to be right next to the person next to you, whether you like them or not. So imagine the city is packed to overflowing, and they're all heading to one particular place. They're all heading to the temple. You see, the temple was central to everything about their life. It was central to their faith, their politics, their social life, their economy. Everything, if you were Jewish, was centered around the temple. And the temple was the place where they thought the very presence of God dwelt. So they would go there to worship. So the first temple, maybe you know, was built by Solomon. And then in 587 B.C., the Babylonians came in and they destroyed the temple. About 512 B.C., they started rebuilding the temple. And so they rebuilt it actually for a long time, until the days of King Herod. And King Herod said, you know, it's not that great. Like it, It's not what it used to be. And so he expanded it, more than doubled the size, to about 17 acres so he expanded this whole temple area because it was to be the focal point of the place. And so he was all about building, and so he did. And so we begin to see this becomes the reality. So here's a picture of the the western wall. This is the outside wall that still exists today. But here's what you should probably know, that it goes about 17 layers deeper underground that you cannot see. And in the midst of some of that, along that outer western wall of the old Temple Mount, is the largest stone ever used in human construction. It's about 300,000 Ton. And so this was destroyed, and this is all that's left. But here is a rendering that you can see in Jerusalem today of what the first century Israel or first century Jerusalem would have looked like. And so the temple is the thing you see right there in the middle of the city. That was the size of the temple in that day. It's about 17 acres. And so in the middle of that, that's where everyone gathered. And so it's into that place, and you see the larger outer courtyard right there. Um, that's where Jesus would have been. That's where the money changers would have been. That's where the animals would have been. That's where it says Jesus drove them out. In fact, the scripture says that he made a whip of cords and drove them out. Well, here's the reality in case you were curious. Weapons were never allowed in the temple area. Ever. So it wasn't like Jesus had some whip, an actual whip that you think of whips today, like some kind of leather thing. No, it was probably made out of, out of like the stuff from animals that they would use um, for their bedding. In fact, most scholars agree the same thing, that he wasn't that he was driving out the people. He was just driving out the animals to clear them out of the space. But think about it for two reasons. Why would then we think, well, of course the people would have left too, because if it was my animal leaving, I would have gone after him, one. But the second reason is this, that notice when the Jewish leaders come to him, they don't say, how come you use violence in the temple courts, which would have never been allowed? They don't say that at all. It's not even a question they ask him. So we're pretty confident in saying this, that he drove out the animals and the people fall behind. And then we see, he says, those with, with the doves get out of here as well. And so the question you might have is this, why in the world did Jesus respond this way? I mean, we talk about the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, as being the overflow of the very things of Jesus. And you go, well, but yeah, but right here, he doesn't sound really gentle, But What would so upset him to bring out this righteous anger in him that he would respond in this way? Was it just the idea that people were selling stuff in the temple court, in the outer court there? I mean, when I was growing up in church, like, there was this kind of idea that, like, you couldn't sell stuff at church. I remember, like, having candy bars from, like, some baseball team or something. Like, Mom, can I sell these on Sunday? No, you cannot do that. I remember youth group fundraiser, like, hey, can we sell this at church? No, you cannot do that. And I was like, oh, okay. And they're like... Jesus got really angry about people selling stuff at church. By the way, not exactly what's happening here. Maybe it's just my mom didn't want to take me candy bars to church. Um, I don't know. But that's not really what was happening in this moment. But here's what you kind of have to understand to understand why Jesus was so upset. When it came to Passover, everyone had to offer up a sacrifice. And so you had to offer up an animal for that. If you were wealthy, you offered up a lamb. If you were poor, you offered up doves. But here's the thing, every temple, the temple had their inspectors who were certified by the temple to go inspect your animals to see if they were without blemish, because only animals without blemish could be offered as a sacrifice. Well, just like almost in any business, over time, um, they realized, hey, if we say they're with blemish, we can buy them back at a discounted rate and sell them animals without blemish at a greater rate. So that was what would happen. People would would come, they would bring their animals, and they'd think they're great, and they'd go, oh, no, it doesn't pass inspection. But you can trade them in and pay this difference, and we'll count that as good. And you go, huh, well, that's kind of a bummer. Or maybe you realize that it says there were money changers. Well, why would there be money changers? Well, because here's the thing. When you would go to the temple, imagine in the ancient world, Jews had been spread all over the Middle East. And so you can imagine all the different currencies that existed, and you would show up, and you might have, if you're from this part of the Middle East or that part, you'd bring different currencies there. But the only money that was taken in the temple area to buy or change or do anything else was called the Tyrian shekel. And so the only place you'd get the Tyrian shekel, by the way, at the temple. So you would show up and you would know you'd have your money and you'd exchange your money. And and by the way, the scripture actually talks about to charge an exchange rate was not a wrong thing. That actually really wasn't that big a deal because someone's got to do the work. The money's got to be exchanged. That wasn't the issue. The issue was they were charging basically double what it was worth. So now if you're keeping score, you show up at the temple with your animal that you're told is not good enough, you've got to pay extra. You bring your money to exchange it, you find out it's not good enough either, you've got to pay extra. Do you notice why Jesus might be upset? And I'd love to say maybe these were the only reasons he was upset, but here's what I think maybe might be true. Those are probably true, but the more you look at this text, it may be something even greater than that. So the way the temple was designed, in case you didn't notice in that picture, and we could talk about it another time, but it had various courts. So the most outer court was known as the Court of the Gentiles, and it was where anyone was welcome. And so if you were a non-Jewish person, a non-Israelite, that's the only place you could go. And then the next court, the next kind of inner court, was the Court of Women. And so if you're a woman, you could enter into that space. And then if you were a Jewish man, an Israelite man, you could enter into the next courtyard, the Court of the Israelites, and then if you're a priest, you could enter into the court of the priests. And then once a year, the high priest could enter into the Holy of Holies, the place where they believed the very presence of God dwelt on earth. For keeping score, again, Court of Gentiles, Court of Women, Court of Israelite Men, Court of Priests, Holy of Holies. But you notice your goal across the board is to get as close as you can to the presence of God. And can you imagine if you were a Gentile and you showed up and you came to worship, you came to pray. How in the world could you pray with sheep bleeding in your ear? with doves flapping, with people exchanging money and the coins making all the noise. Can you imagine with people teeming in from all over the place, the volume of what that would be? I mean, I know in my own house, it's hard when my kids wake up for me to pray wherever they are. right? Like I can't imagine what it was like in that day, in that place. And so Jesus says, my father's house is a house of prayer. How much praying do you think is happening when all this is being done? By the way, the selling of animals wasn't the issue. The changing of money wasn't the issue right? Like, those things actually kind of had to happen if people were going to come there to offer their sacrifices. But the way in which it was done and the way in which people had been pushed aside, the way boundaries had been erected to keep people from the presence of God, that was the issue Jesus came to address. So I was thinking, how could I describe this? But think about like, have you ever gone to like a sporting event, like a basketball game? And most games I go to, I sit in those seats, you know, they call them nosebleeds. They're up at the top. But every once in a while, you get lucky and you get one of those, you'll have a friend, because for me, it's always a friend or a friend of a friend that has like, the really good seats, you know, like in, in a suite of some kind. And you, you get there and you're like, oh, are they going to let me in? Like, i got a pass. And you get to go into the good spot. And it's like, and we have food. And then you look at the people way up at the top. and You're going, oh, that's a bummer, right? Like, you know, you're not welcome here. If you go without the right pass and you go to that spot and, and maybe you see like, those are my friends in there. Like, ah, yep, sorry. You don't have the right ticket you are not welcome in that space. And this is kind of what it was like when people would show up at the temple. If you didn't have the right ticket, you're stuck on the outside. If you had a little better ticket, you can keep moving your way in. And Jesus sees this system, and he shows up, and he's like, I don't love the idea that people are separated from the presence of God. I don't love the idea that by virtue of not only where you were born, but what your gender, I don't love the way these things separate us. In fact, I don't love that when you show up to pray, you can't even pray because of the noise and the confusion and the chaos. And so what he does is he begins to speak into that by flipping over the tables, by driving out the animals. What he's saying is this, this sacrificial system, this way of doing life that we think is connected to being connected to God, it's done. So the Jewish leaders, they come up to Jesus and go, what authority or what sign do you have to do this? And his response was this, destroy this temple and I will rebuild it again in three days. They replied, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. And they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Now, I don't know if you thought about this, but um, the temple took way more than 46 years to build. I'm not 100% sure why they gave that number, but at least in their lifetimes, right? It was a long time. It took a long time to build the temple. And the idea that Jesus, not only is it going to be destroyed, but it's going to be rebuilt in that amount of time I'm like, are you serious? Like, I I can only imagine they're kind of mocking him in this moment. Yeah, you're going to rebuild this thing in three days? I don't know what kind of construction you think is going to happen, but it's not going to happen in three days. But we see in verse 22 this kind of glimpse of what John does all throughout this gospel, all throughout this book, right? John John's the writer of this this book that we call John. Go figure, it's really high-tech way we named it. But John writes this book, and throughout the book of John, what John does is he adds commentary. Right, so verse 22 is not like what happened in the story. It's John saying, hey, by the way, so you can have an understanding of what happened, here's what happened. The disciples didn't really get it at first because Jesus was talking about his body. What he's saying is this, that there's no literal temple where the presence of God will dwell, but the very presence of God is standing in front of you. And if you come to know Jesus through his life, death, and his resurrection, the very spirit of God, the very presence of God can be with you where you are. There is no place on this earth the presence of god does not dwell so jesus says to the sacrificial system it is no more i'll become the sacrifice that is needed for more in fact what he's saying in these moments and the disciples would have been hearing is at the end of the day what god never really desired was their sacrifice he desired them in fact what we find there may be hearing the words of hosea in their ears For I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. Isaiah 6. Are these words from the prophet Isaiah. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and release from darkness for the prisoners. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who Mourn, and provide for those who grieve in Zion. To bestow beauty, I'm sorry, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. Are These words from Psalm 51. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O oh God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You, God, will not. Maybe you're not as excited as I am about those texts, but what they tell us is this that we don't have to worry about preparing the right sacrifice, getting all these things ready, making off the right thing to the gods, or anything like that. That is not what we have to do. What God says is this I want your heart. I want to know your love. I want you to know my love. I want you to enter into a relationship with me in a way that changes everything about your life. And so Jesus cleanses the temple, not because of the money changers, not because of the animals. He cleanses the temple because there were things separating people from the presence of God. Whatever barriers may exist in our lives and the world around us, Jesus wants to continually remove those barriers. And woe to you or I if we had barriers to other people to come to know him. That's the point for you and I today. And so I started thinking, what do we do in ways that we begin to do that to others? And so, I mean, we do it in all kinds of ways in our own day. But um, I'm doing something kind of dangerous. I'm going to share a picture from Twitter. Uh, which is kind of dangerous anytime you do that, right? If you say that in front of people. But, but this is from Twitter, and so here's this image I want to mention. For, it's kind of a, a anyway. Uh, so that guy, why don't you preach more on sin? Person's response, okay, tell me your sin, and I'll try to preach a sermon on it. That guy, no, I mean, why don't you preach on that sin, whatever other sin? And he goes, is that your sin? Guy says, no. Well, why would you want to hear a sermon on someone else's sin? Some of you laugh about that. Some of you are probably irritated. I even shared that, and that's probably the point. If you're so worried about someone else's sin, what about your own life? I can't help but think that for you and I, this is the challenge for us. It's easy to go, I don't struggle with that at all. Well, good. We don't need to add boundaries or barriers to other people's lives because our own sin becomes a big enough barrier on its own. What Jesus comes to say is this, there are no barriers placed in front of you by God. In fact, the only barriers you have, you've placed there. I've come to remove everything I can. If you want to say yes to me, you are welcome, you are invited. Come to know my love, come to know my grace, come to know my mercy. But what he's saying is this, the temple is the place of God's presence, that's over. I mean, sure, gather with people, worship together, those are great things. He's not discrediting that. But what he's saying this, unlike the structure of the temple that keeps you from God's presence, I have come that you may know God's presence in your everyday life. The death and the resurrection of Jesus invites you and I to become the very temple of God. I know. I still think it's crazy. That someone God's love for us through his son Jesus, he invites you and I to be the very place where God's presence dwells on earth. Crazy, I know. But he desires to so transform us, to so change us, to make our hearts like his heart for us to learn to love as he loves. He invites us to be a unique people, not defined by a building or a nation, but solely found in the resurrection of his son, Jesus. God does not desire for us to live in far off and feel like he is far off. He wants us to know him and be known by him. He doesn't want us to wonder if our sacrifice is good enough, if we've offered enough, if it's without blemish enough. But it wants us to know that he has come, that you and I can find life. It's this picture of the Holy of Holies going out over the whole face of the earth so there's no longer a need for a temple court of the Gentiles or the women or the Israelites or the priests. In fact, there's no need of the Holy of Holies because you and I are invited to become in the very place where God's presence dwells on earth. It's a dramatic shift from offering up sacrifices to Jesus being the sacrifice. In fact, it's a shift from us having to offer up a sacrifice to us being invited to a table. It's a pretty cool picture, by the way. Last week, we talked just briefly about this idea that Jesus turns water to wine and it's an overabundant, is more than could ever be needed at one wedding feast. But we're reminded as we follow that text with this one, what John wants us to know is this, that God's table is more than open for all people. There's more than enough room for all of us. In fact, you and I are not invited to offer sacrifices, but to offer ourselves. Not to try to make ourselves right, but to be invited into the very presence of God so that he can transform us. We're invited to come to the table. A table that has more than enough. A table in which everyone is invited And there are obstacles and there are boundaries to the table, but not because Jesus hasn't removed them. It's because you and I won't entrust them to him. There's nothing in your life, there's no thing you have done where God's grace is not sufficient. There is no thing you or I have been a part of in which he does not desire to forgive and embrace us as his own, to invite us to his table as his unique family to become his people. And so this morning, in just a moment, we'll invite you, if you would like, to come to the table to recognize that that God's grace is sufficient for you and I. There's nothing you and I can do to earn it. We cannot offer up a sacrifice good enough. But what well, the prophets said and we read a few moments ago is this that it's about having a heart that says, God, I want to be yours. I want to know your love and I want to be defined by that. And so there's some kind of mystery about coming to the table. We call it communion or Eucharist or the Lord's Supper. And and we come to this thing and we we take things that are symbolic, bread and juice or wine, and we dip our bread into the cup and someone says to you the body of Christ for you or the blood of Christ for you There's this idea that we're invited into a uniquely new family there's nothing you can do to earn your way in it has already been paid for you were invited to be a part and you are called to be a part and then we're called to live in such a way like Jesus to remove whatever boundaries and barriers and obstacles others have placed in the way and invite them in as well Because in the kingdom of God, there's always room for one more. There's always room for one more person. There's always room for one more person to come to the table to receive his grace. There's something mysterious about the grace of God that we can't really ever fully comprehend. It is grander and greater than we can ever give words to. But somehow the death and the resurrection of Jesus offers you and I new life. You are called and invited to be his people in the world. His hands and feet. The very temple of God. And this morning, in just a moment, i will invite you if you'd like to come. And every time you come to the table, what you're saying is this: that I think Jesus is Lord. I want to follow Him with my life. I want to have a contrite heart, and I want to live for Him. And so, you're invited this morning, if that's you, to come to the table to receive His grace, to receive His blessing, to know it's open for you today. We pray with me this morning, Father. We come before you today, and we recognize that we desperately need you to come near. So this morning Lord we ask that as we prepare to come to the table we'd recognize that your grace is sufficient from wherever we are and wherever we have come from and father we pray that as some come to help with this this morning that as we come to this table we'd recognize that you extend your love and your mercy for us wherever we are as we are but in your love you don't leave us there so father we ask today that you would help us to sense your grace and mercy to receive it